the gospel lesson this morning is from John 20, 19 to 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Be God. Let's pray. Christ, the uh, church is your church. You're her king and her head. You're also her bridegroom. And you're the one who's returning to take her to yourself. And Lord, we confess that this word is your word and that this word is about you, that Holy Spirit, you are the one who inspires the word. You're the one who illumines its exposition. And so this morning, we pray that you would take your word and drive it deep into the hearts of your church. We pray that you would take the places in our hearts where doubt dwells, where darkness dwells, and that you would create faith, that you would bring life in the hearts of your church and build your church. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would overlook and forgive my sin and work through the ordinary means of preaching to accomplish your extraordinary work. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So this morning, if I were to have a jar of jelly beans and set it on the table in front of you, and I were to ask all of you to take a guess at how many jelly beans there were, and y'all know this exercise, there would be probably 200 different guesses in this room. And here's the deal. Most of us would be wrong. One of us would probably be right, but some of us would be more right than others. But the number of jelly beans that are in the jar are a matter of fact. You can be right about it, or you can be wrong about it. Now, if I were to take that jar of jelly beans and walk around the congregation and have you all pick out your favorite one, and then eat it, and then ask you, hey, which is the best jelly bean? What's the best flavor? See, there'd be a ton of debate in the room, and none of y'all would be wrong. And some of y'all might be right, but... See, the thing is, what it tastes like, what the favorite taste is, is a matter of subjective opinion. The number of jelly beans in the jar is a matter of objective fact. And the difference between facts and opinions are facts are you are right about them or you are wrong about them, and facts have consequences. Preferences are just a matter of preference. They come and go. Now, here's the deal. 
We get the, at the very end of what I just read, John is giving you his purpose statement for writing this book. And what he's saying is that the gospel of John is not an articulation of John's preferences about Jesus. They are not an articulation of his opinion about Jesus. They are observations of what he saw. So this morning, what we're going to take a look at together is what exactly did John see and what are the implications for us that come from it? So first, John at the end calls our attention to the topic of the Christ. If you see in verse 31, he says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. It's another way of saying uh, in, the, in the original language, this would have said that the Christ is Jesus. See, John is fronting the question of who is the Christ. And the reason is, by the time the Jews would have read this in the in first century uh, you know, Roman Empire, at that point, they would have been slaves of different nations at this point, Rome, for probably about 500 years. If you remember the story, they had gone into exile on account of their sin and the sin of their leaders. By grace, the Lord allowed them to return to their land. But even as he returned to their land, um, they, they still weren't established. They didn't have a king. They were allowed to rebuild the temple, but the temple didn't meet the glory of the first temple. And for several centuries, they remained enslaved to other nations. See, for the Jewish people at this point, they knew a couple of things. They knew tears. If you remember the story, when they saw the new temple being built, they wept because it didn't meet the glory that they had seen before. They knew pain. They literally knew what it was like to be enslaved to another nation and to not be free. They also knew death. They were subjects of other nations and occupied by those nations. But see, here's the deal. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of the 500 years of their slavery, of their exile, God had made a promise. And that promise was this, that better days were coming. That there were days coming when restoration would happen. And here's the thing, those days, uh, the Lord didn't promise that they would be a return to the good old days. He made a promise that they would be better new days that better days were coming than the ones that you had been at before. But he also said this, that you guys know that you got into this mess because of your leadership, but also because you're sheep and you need a shepherd. And so he promised another thing. He promised that these better days would come through a leader, would come through a king, would come through a Christ. And so as years turned into centuries and their slavery marched on, what happened for the Jewish people was they began to fixate on the, the promise of better days ahead because their political situation wasn't changing, their economic situation wasn't changing. In fact, their spiritual situation was getting worse. If you remember the, all the books of the prophets, by this point, the prophets had stopped speaking and they were replaced by the priests and the Pharisees who were loading on top of God's laws, new rules and traditions of men. The situation was bleak and so for them, there was a palpable expectation and the anticipation of the day that the king would come who would make everything new. But, the, but here's the deal. They were still unsure about what those new days were going to look like. And they were still unsure about who exactly the king was going was to be. But they knew for certain that one was coming. And so John starts here by saying, drawing our attention to the Christ. But if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we're not different than the Jewish people. This isn't just a Jewish expectation. This is a human longing. We're, this morning, we're not slaves to Rome. We're not even slaves to another nation. We're in the freest country in the history of the world. But this morning, every single one of us knows tears. Every single one of us knows pain. 
Every single one of us knows death. In tears, perhaps you have uh, either the brokenness of a relationship or the brokenness of a dream or the brokenness of an expectation. Maybe you were raised believing that your life was going to turn out one way and then your life turned out a different way. Or when it comes to pain, perhaps you uh, grew up with a thriving physical body, but then one day your body broke. Maybe you have built your life around a, a, a thriving, flourishing marriage, and then one day your marriage breaks. Or maybe one day you're growing up in, an, in a long, long generations of families that love one another, and then one day your family breaks. So we know pain. And then last but not least, we all know death. Death may have visited you this week or last month or last year, but all of us in this room have probably had someone in our family die, someone who's close to us die. And then every day as we deal with the, the pain of our bodies, the decay of our bodies, we know that we're on the long, slow march toward our own death. It is clear as day to every single one of us, if we're quiet for just a minute, that things are not always well that we're not living in the world the way it was meant to be, and we're not living as we were meant to be. It's funny, you know, every, uh, every four years as a nation, down to almost the individual person, we enter into this two-year cycle of major debate, and y'all know what I'm getting at. The race for the President of the United States is about to happen. And that is a major topic. It's probably a major topic in this church. It's a major topic at your dinner table. It's a major topic in your communities. But I'm not going to talk to you about the presidential race this morning. I just simply want to make a point. The reason that it is such a big deal to us is this. One, we're aware of the fact that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. And we also long for things to be the way they're supposed to be. And we also know that we don't know exactly what that is in ourselves. And we also know that we're not able to do it ourselves. And we also know that if we were able to do it, we're not always willing to do it. And so we deeply, deeply, deeply long for a leader who will come and usher in new and better days. And so for us, every four years, the reason the, the race for the president of the United States is such a big deal is because we are looking for a Christ. Now again, this morning is not about who's going to be president of the United States or not, or even to bring up a commentary on that whole topic. It's simply to point out the fact that deep in the longing of every single human being is the looking for the one who's going to come from God and who's going to usher in new days. So we see that John, in writing his book, he points us uh, to the topic of the Christ. But he doesn't point us to the topic of the Christ because he intends to lead us to despair. He doesn't point us to the topic of the Christ because he wants to distract us from today's pain with a promise about the future. See, John points us to the topic of the Christ because John has news. John has at this point written 20 chapters and then sums it up by saying this, we found the Christ and the Christ is Jesus. The one that you're deep longing human heart has been looking for, we have found. I am convinced of it. So what I want to do for a bit of the remainder of our time is this, is look at the evidence of what is it that had John convinced that they had found the Christ? What is it that had convinced men, who had convinced the disciples who became the apostles, 
that they had found the one that all of human history had been looking for. And the way we're going to do that is through two ways. First, for someone to be, for someone to become convinced that someone is the Christ, there has to be proof. There has to be evidence. There has to be a seal. And then the second is it's not enough to just have evidence. It's not enough for the person to just be a great man. They have to be related to our pain in a certain way. They have to be related to our problem in a certain way. And so what we're going to look at this morning is as John says that we found the Christ and his name is Jesus. We're going to look at the proof of that and we're going to look at the benefits that John experienced in Christ. So first the proof. I don't want to miss the obvious this morning. Last weekend was Easter, but we're still in the Easter text. Jesus got up out of the grave. We just sang the song. He trampled over death by death. Why is that such a big deal to the apostles? Why is it such a big deal to John or to Thomas or to any of those men who saw it? It's this. A few days before this, the men who walked, now listen, the men who walked with Jesus for three years watched him be murdered. They watched Jesus die. These men took Jesus' body and laid it in a grave. I don't know the last time you've been to a funeral, but there is no sobering or real moment than when, when the body goes into the ground and you know the thing is over. Just a couple of days ago, John had seen Jesus laid in the tomb. Jesus being dead was a real fact for John. So imagine his surprise a couple of days later when out of fear for the Jews, they were locked inside a room and guess who shows up? Jesus shows up. That same man in that same body who they had seen laid in the grave was now standing in their midst. See, John was convinced First off, that Jesus was the Christ because he had not just seen Jesus alive, he had seen Jesus dead. You know, uh, uh, Thomas, the story of Thomas sort of gets at this. He, the he, guy gets a little bit of a bad rap. We call him Doubting Thomas a lot. And we usually do that tongue in cheek, but we also sort of blame him as having an obstinate, frustrated faith. That he was one who was just unwilling to believe despite the evidence. In other words, Thomas was the first skeptic of skeptics. But why was Thomas, who had walked with Jesus, who had been the one who said, let us go to Jerusalem that we might die with him, why was he the one who was so unwilling to believe? Well, it was this. For Thomas, Thomas, again, he had seen Jesus die. He had laid eyes on the buried Christ. For Thomas, the word about Jesus' resurrection was not enough. The announcement that Jesus had risen wasn't enough. Thomas, because he's the one who had seen Jesus die, needed to see Jesus alive. What's the crazy miracle of the story? Thomas ends up believing. Here's my point with that. This morning, what I want you to see as an, as an objective fact, John, Thomas, the nine other disciples who became apostles, they were convinced that a man they had seen dead, they had now seen alive. Well, why does that matter? Well, it matters because of this. Humans aren't in the habit of raising themselves from the dead. 
Humans are in the habit of dying, but not in coming back from death. If a human comes back from death, it means this. It means God has done it. And if God has raised a man from the dead, then here's the thing. What that man has said is true about himself. What that man has said about us, y'all, is true. What that man has said about John and Thomas was true. And also meant that the objective of that man, that his intent, his work, was sponsored by God. See, John is convinced that Jesus is the Christ they've been looking for because of this. The resurrection is the seal of his Christship, of his Messiahship. Y'all know when um, uh, Jen and I moved this summer, and if y'all remember when you move, you have like all of these mortgage documents you have to go through, and they're getting better. They're trying to make it faster, but there's like piles and piles and piles, and these people don't know you. And so they want proof that you are who you say you are. And so what you do is you have to go down to the notary, you bring your papers, and when you go to the notary, you could have said whatever you wanted to on those documents, but what the notary does is the notary confirms that who you say you are is who you are. And then what happens? They squeeze that little squeeze and you get the seal on your papers. See, the resurrection was God's notarizing that Jesus was the Christ. But it's not enough that Jesus was just a great man, that he was just a man sponsored by God, that he was just a man attested to by God. If Jesus isn't related to our problem, if he's not related to our tears and our pain and our death, if he's not related to our restlessness, then he's not the Christ. He's a great man, but he's not the Christ. In order for him to be the one we've been looking for to usher in not just good old days, but better new days, there have to be better new days coming. So what I want to do next is, is this. I don't want to convince you of one benefit of Jesus. What I'd like to do, if y'all will bear with me, is I'm going to review the six benefits that Christ brings just in this text. And the reason I want to do this is I want, to, I want to point you toward that in the person of Jesus, he is not just attested to by God, but there is not just one benefit coming. But when we run through the list, the whole of a new age, the whole of new days is ushered in by Jesus. So what did John experience first? You know, it says in verse 19 that on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They had just seen Jesus murdered. They haven't seen him alive yet. And those same people who were able to be the agents of the death of the man they had seen walk on the sea and raise other people from the dead. I mean, they had good reason to fear them. Not only that, but the disciples were directly connected to Jesus. So it was natural for them to fear that they might be next. So what do they do? In the depth of their fear, they run into a room, lock themselves in it and try to hide out. The reason is they're still in Jerusalem. Everybody had gathered for the Passover feast. They hadn't gone back to their original hometown yet. They've just been locked up in the city where the leaders are. Where do they meet the risen Christ? The apostles meet the risen Christ right in the midst of the fear and the room they're locked in. You know what that means? Your Christ moves towards your pain, not away from it. 
Your Christ moves into your fear, not away from it. Think about when things are hard, when things are crazy, when you feel like, I don't know what's happening right now, but God is certainly far from me or I'm at least far from Him. It's exactly in the middle of that space that John says the Christ shows up. Second thing that happens is when he shows up, do you remember why they're afraid? They're afraid because he was dead. They had seen him murdered. But when he shows up right in the midst of their pain, right in the midst of their fear, how does Jesus show up? He shows up alive. Look, for them, uh, death was two things. Death was both their greatest fear and their worst enemy. You know why John was convinced Jesus was the Christ? Because Jesus showed up right in the middle of their pain, holding victory over death. In, in, uh, it's been Easter this past week, and y'all saw um, our little five-year-old boy, and so he's pretty rough and tumble, and he likes superheroes, and he likes, uh, you know, anything that has to do with ninjas and kicking and fighting. And so the way we've talked about Easter in our family is this, is that Jesus went down into death. You know what he did when he was down into death? He kicked death in the face. And then after kicking death in the face, he trampled over death, came back to us from death. See, when, when John saw the risen Christ, he saw the one who was entirely victorious over the thing that John feared the most, which was death. The third thing that happens is after Jesus has not abandoned them, not run from them, not ignored them in their fear and pain, and then Jesus has shown up having victory over the thing that they feared the most, what does he do? He announces to them peace. The Greek text literally says, peace to you. See, the, this, this uh, phrase, um, you've probably heard it, we do it ourselves. We say, man, I, um, I hope it's well with you, or good luck, best wishes, have a good Christmas. See, when we say it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a party. We say it when we're leaving, it's a farewell thing. But also when we say it, it's a wish. You can't control whether someone else is well or not. You can't control whether someone else has a good Christmas. But you know what? When Jesus shows up, he doesn't say it as a farewell. He says it as a greeting. He announces it as a new reality to mark what's about to come next. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus says peace. When Jesus says peace, he's talking about uh, the Hebrew topic or concept of shalom, if you all know shalom. Shalom is this. Peace is not um, there's snow on the ground and things are quiet. Peace is this. Everything is well with you. Everything that was unwell with you is not true anymore. Everything is now well with you. See, when Jesus shows up as the Christ, he doesn't just give you wishes. He announces to you that everything is well. What's interesting about that is part of the reason why John becomes convinced that Jesus is the Christ is because in the midst of our tears, our pain, our death, our restlessness, 
we're not exactly sure what it is that we need. Sometimes I wake up in the morning with the same uh, jam in my brain that I went to sleep with. And I'm not sure how to get it unlocked. Have you all had that experience? That just, it's, you know, it's not literally an alcoholic hangover, but it's just like an emotional, psychological, intellectual hangover. It's like, I don't know what to do. See, John is convinced that Jesus is the Christ is because Jesus knows the peace that you need. He doesn't just know the peace that you want. He doesn't just know the comfort that you long for. He knows the peace that will actually take you from restlessness to rest. That's your Christ. And here's the peace that Jesus brings. He went down into the grave and then he came back sponsored by God. And when he said peace, if you remember, the disciples had just betrayed Jesus. They had just abandoned Jesus. They had just ran from Jesus. They had denied Jesus. The next time they saw Jesus after Peter had denied him or John had left him, Jesus shows up and says, peace. It's well between you and me. Jesus also shows up sponsored by God. And so when he says peace, he says it's well between you and God. And he also says peace to you. That it's well between y'all. You're good. You know why that matters? In the midst of all of our restlessness and our, our uncertainty about the rest that we need, here's what Jesus does. He shows up and tells you the principal rest that you need is reconciliation with God. In all the things that are unwell with you, what you primarily need is for things to be well between you and God. That everything else that's unwell doesn't matter if things are well between you and God. Hey, do you all know that experience where you have a, a, a group of relationships and you're trying to figure out how to fit in and how to be worthwhile and how to avoid doing the wrong things and strive to do the right things? But then you end up uh, either engaged or married. You end up with a more significant relationship that trumps all of those. And you find security in that relationship. And what happens? Immediately all the chaos of the other relationships calms down. It's not that it goes away. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. See, Jesus shows up and says, the thing that you need in your restlessness is reconciliation with God. You will not find rest until you find rest in me. The fourth thing I want to point you to is this. Just read closely with me verse 20. At the end of verse 19, as Jesus said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, or as he was saying this, he showed them his hands and his side. What's up with that? What were the hands and what was the side? The last time they had laid eyes on Jesus, he had been in a tomb. And the reason he was in a tomb is he had been nailed through his wrist to a cross. His arms had been pierced. And then if you remember, they didn't break his bones. Jesus laid down his own life. And what did they do? They pierced his heart. 
with a lance. See, right as Jesus says, peace to you, he shows them his scars. And the reason he shows them his scars is this. The reason things are not well between man and God, the reason things aren't well between you and God, the, thing, the reason things aren't well between me and God is sin. We got it from our parents, but we do it ourselves. Y'all remember the story, Adam and Eve, our first parents were given the covenant of works. They were given uh, terms of a relationship where if they perfectly obeyed, they would have life. But they didn't want life dependent on God. They wanted life in independence. So they attempted independence. And what happened? It ushered in death. It ushered in pain. It ushered in the curse. It sent them into relational exile, physical exile from God. We've done the same exact things that Adam and Eve have done. We deeply long for life on our own terms. We deep, <laughs> we're Americans. I mean, our most celebrated document isn't the Constitution, it's the Declaration of Independence. We love to have things the way that we want them. But what the Bible says is that a demand for independence as opposed to submitted dependence to God, submitted dependence to Christ is sin. The other thing our sin does is it also robs us of the righteousness we were intended for. You know, you were made to do good stuff. You were. When you wake up in the morning and you have that longing for something meaningful in your life, to make some impact in the world, there, there's all these different campaigns out now about difference making. It's because you were made to do good and to make a difference in the world. Frankly, you were made to steward and shepherd God's good garden. But because of your sin, you're not only a rebel, you're also lacking the thing you were made for. What's that have to do with Jesus' scars? Well, hopefully y'all settled last week that Jesus went to the cross sinless. The fact that he was raised from the grave by God is itself the evidence that he didn't have his own sin. So why was he pierced? He was pierced for your sin. He was pierced for John's sin. He was pierced for my sin. So look, when, jo when Jesus shows John and Thomas the marks in his arms and the, the hole in his side, John can literally see the blows that his sin deserves. But he sees them in somebody else's body. We don't talk about this a lot, but the other thing that Jesus' death, that the marks were, were evidence that Jesus had obeyed God all the way to death on a cross. Do you all remember that verse? The marks of Jesus' death were also the sign of his perfect, perpetual, personal obedience. Even submitting to death, death of a criminal, Jesus perfectly submitted to the will of the Father. Here's what that means. The reason Jesus shows up and announces peace to you is because he was pierced for your sin. He shows you the marks. It's like the blow that your sin deserves is right here. And then as he shows you the marks, he also goes, the righteousness that's required of you is right here. I was perfectly obedient for you. See, Jesus, because he did everything that's required, is the one who's able to announce to you peace. Two final benefits. You know, in showing us his scars, Jesus 
exchanged our sin for His righteousness. He set us right with God. He restored you to your primary relationship so that all is well. Everything's well between you and God. But He doesn't stop at that exchange. It's so interesting. How much of your life do you languish over and wrestle with purposelessness? Like either you don't have a purpose, you you literally are not sure what to do with your day. Or you're very busy at work that you're not sure is making a difference. We can go in detail at some point if y'all want to, but I know this well. To wake up in the morning super busy and to feel like none of what I'm doing matters. That's a form of purposelessness. You know what Jesus does next after saying, your sin is mine and my righteousness is yours. He says, I will take your purposelessness and I will give you my own purpose. Look at verse 21. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Look, this morning, if you're in Christ, if Christ has pursued you, if he has shown up in the midst of your pain, shown himself victorious over death, taking your sin from you and giving you his righteousness, then you have a story. And that story is the only hope of the world. Not just your story, but that macro story. The fact that in Christ, man is reconciled to God. That you know in your story, Christ has already given you everything you need to make the most meaningful impact in the world. You know, sometimes when, we, uh, when we're, y'all will probably connect with this, I hope, but uh, when we are, when I am feeling most purposeless, I fancy myself Shad Khan. Y'all were supposed to laugh when I said that. You can laugh now. I don't actually think I'm Shad Khan, but I think about, man, people like that who have acquired resources and are leveraging those resources to do city building, who are leveraging those resources to make a real long difference. Do you know a day is coming when even Shad Khan's work is going to pass away? The shipyards won't be anymore. The jumbotrons will be gone. But you know the one thing in this world that will last forever In fact, forever is being brought to it, is the church. And the church is not this building. The church is not a building. The church is the people of God who've been reconciled to God by the work and person of Christ. See, in your own story, God has invited you to participate in his building of the church. He's taken from you purposelessness and giving you purpose. Last thing. Sometimes I wake up, even this morning, you know, Jen and I talk so often about... um, preaching and God's desire to do extraordinary work, but he's giving you ordinary means. Like I'm just not able to bring about the thing that God wants to bring about. He has to do it. That as humans, there's a smallness to our capacity. You know what Jesus says? What he said to John? I'll take the smallness of your capacity and I'll give to you the bigness of my spirit. That even as you stay in this world, you don't have to be afraid of tomorrow because I'm with you. 
My very own spirit is in you. You don't have to worry about your incompetence for tomorrow because I'm there to be competent with you and for you. That as you pursue the mission I've invited you into, you don't have to worry about your incapacity for it because I have all the capacity. Look, if I haven't sufficiently persuaded you this morning, here's what I want you to hear. In the person of Jesus, your Christ descended into your worst fear and greatest enemy, death. He kicked death in the face. Then he trampled over death and returned to you, to the apostles from death and announced to you peace. Showed you the scars that were the mark of the removal of your sin and you being put in possession of righteousness. And then he took from you your own purposelessness and your own small capacity and gave you his own purpose and his own capacity. There are better days ahead. See, John was convinced that Jesus was the Christ, not just because he had done amazing works, not just because he had seen him risen, but because he was sure that a new age had come, that there was a new reality that was breaking in, that light was breaking into the darkness. So where does that leave us this morning? How do we respond to that? I want to remind you this morning that where we started, John is not writing an opinion of Jesus. John's not stitching together doctrine. This is a man who was hiding, who came out of hiding, because the man he saw murdered, he saw alive, and that man who was now alive announced to him peace with God and put him in possession of his own spirit. See, John is arguing that the resurrection of Christ is a historical objective fact. It's not like which jelly bean tastes the best. It's how many jelly beans are in the jar. You're right or you're wrong. You know what John says? John remembers Jesus saying, in me, right here, in verse 23, in me, in what you've witnessed, if I got out of the grave, if I showed you my scars, your sins are forgiven. This morning, you're reconciled with God. Like, that's not a doctrine or a theory. That's a historical fact. There's peace between you and God. There's peace between you and one another. You have a purpose that's bigger than any other purpose that you could possibly pursue. But if that's not true, you're stuck in your sins. That's a fact. If Jesus didn't get out of the grave, you're not reconciled with God. You have reason for your restlessness. You have reason to pursue looking for life in other things. So it comes down to this. Was John a liar or not? If Jesus got out of the grave, if John saw him alive and heard the words peace, then things are well with you. So again, where does that leave us? Well, it's this. John ends by saying, these things are written so that you may believe that the Christ is Jesus, the Son of God. And here it is. And that by believing, or in that belief, or being put in possession of that belief, 
you might have life in His name. What does it mean to have life in the name of Jesus? Here's what it means. When you're scared, and you feel like God's abandoned you, the Gospel promises you that Jesus is moving toward you. Not away from you. That when you wake up in the morning and you're afraid, the thing that you're afraid of can't be worse than death or maybe it's death itself. And Jesus has already conquered death. Everything that you could possibly be afraid of, your Christ already has control over. You know what that means? All the tears, all the pain, all the death, they're not enemies of yours anymore. They're tools in the hands of a Christ who loves you and is working out your good. You know when you're restless... When you're restless, what the gospel says is this, you can find rest. But your rest is this, your rest is in the fact that you've been reconciled to God. It's not in comfort. Your rest is not in things going the way you think they need to go. Your rest is in the fact that your primary relationship has been restored. If you were like me this morning, you woke up aware of your sin. If Jesus really showed John the marks that killed him. And at the same time announced to him peace. Then that means the blows that are due to your sin in history have been laid in somebody else's body. And that the righteousness that's required of you has been achieved by somebody else, by Jesus. And he offers it to you. You are actually forgiven of your sin. Here's what that means. That means there's no need to pester. There's no need to fester. There's no need to, to get spun up in your sin. Y'all know what penance is, right? You all know what guilt is. You know what shame is. There's nothing worse you could do than your sin. And Jesus already took it. Already in history, as a fact, has taken it from you. There's no good you can do that's bigger than laying the foundation of the church and your perfect perpetual obedience to the Father. Christ has already given that to you. You are good. There is no means for guilt or shame. Things are well with, with you. Finally, it means when you wake up and you're not sure what to do, you're not sure how this day or this week or this year or this decade is going to matter. Here's what you do. You walk across the street and you get to know your neighbor. And the reason you get to know your neighbor is this. There's only one hope for them in the world and it's Christ. And he's already put you in possession of the story of him moving towards man to reconcile him. See, in place of your purposelessness, Christ has given you mission and he's given you his spirit. What I hope to do this morning, and I probably took long, but you'll forgive me is to persuade you of this. There's so many things Jesus did. But this one, the last one, is the chief one. Jesus showing himself to the men who seen him murdered, risen and alive and announcing peace, is the evidence that he is the Christ. I want you to believe that this morning. I don't want you to believe that as a doctrine. I don't want you to believe that as moralism. I don't want you to believe that as a philosophy. I want you to believe that as a fact. And in believing that Christ actually got out of the grave, I want you to find life in his name. Let's pray. Jesus, again, you're our king.
but you're also our Christ. You rule us, but even as you move into our pain, you subdue us. That you've already conquered our enemies and you are continuing to conquer our enemies. That even as we fail now in the littleness of our capacity, you intercede for us. That Holy Spirit, you dwell among us and in us and you know our groanings and you articulate them for us. That you work with us. Christ, I pray this morning that you would build your church, that you would convince us of the historical reality, the objective fact of your resurrection, that you would rescue us from doctrinalism, from moralism, from theology out of its place, that you would restore us to the fact that our Christ has come and that new, better days are already at hand. And we pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.